to a better world. Merry Christmas and happy holidays, everyone. This is a joyous time of year. Despite all of the madness happening in and around us, my God, that's a whole other story. But to sort of um, elevate us and elevate our spirit today, I have invited Robert Levine to join us. Robert's been on the show before in a roundtable regarding uh, politics, and I believe it was conscious politics, looking at the world through understanding uh, the political landscape and yet also from a more elevated point of view. So it makes perfect sense that we'd be looking to Robert to help elevate us during this period of time this season as well. This time, however, we'll be speaking about Robert as poet, as well as political activist, both together. His book called Without Knowing Where We Are Going is a fine volume of his poetry that has been collected over some time. He uh, set himself a very interesting goal of writing a poem a day for a period of time, and the result is this book. Roger, uh, I'm sorry, Robert is also a certified yoga instructor, and he's been practicing yoga and teaching it for many, many years at this point. And one of the things that I feel really distinguishes Robert is his relationship to the body politic, so to speak, which is really just looking at the art of governance and, and fairness and justice and the deeper rhythm, you could say, of literary awareness and the use of language in the form of poetry. So it's really a pleasure to have Robert on. And I also want to say that for the second half of today's show, we will be joined by his wife, Karen Bromberg, who is a licensed audiologist and is doing some wonderful work in the domain of caregiving, something that doesn't get a lot of uh, audio time, actually. And it will be a pleasure and real gift to learn about what she is helping to do for people who are caregivers, which is an increasing population, actually. That includes me, uh, because of the aging baby boomers and their families and parents and all of that. So tune in for the uh, second part of today's show to go into that. So, Robert, welcome back to A Better World. A pleasure to have you again, my friend. Mitchell, I'm really, it's a pleasure to be here today and to speak with you about my poetry and about poetry and society and social activism. Excellent, excellent. Well, you know, I'm honestly very tempted to just kind of ask you to start with a poem out of which we can then expand a bit and, you know, take a look at, you know, uh, um, how that interfaces with your deeper sense of values and worldview. So could we just jump in? Sure, certainly happy to do that. So actually, since Karen will be joining us later, I'll start with her favorite. Okay. Never trust a mirror. The eyes always appear to look in the wrong direction. The only reflections that can be trusted are the ones in puddles and ponds. The waves and ripples show a depth of character mirrors can only dream of. <laughs> wow. I love it. That really is. That really strikes to the heart of so many things. 
I love the way the eyes never look straight. You know, they don't want to see what they see. What an interesting metaphor. Your comments. Yeah, and I think that's very true about what we're facing. We're, you know, we are, as you started, what you said at the start of the program, we're facing great challenges, not only in our political arena. I mean, we as humans have faced tremendous challenges over the millennia. There have been wars and tyrannies and plagues and violence unimaginable to most of us living in the United States that unfortunately still, that so many in the world still suffer. But we're, we're suffering a real political crisis in the presidency of Donald Trump in the the way our government is taking us back in time, and we've lost so many gains over the past 70 years. But there's also a change in perception, how people are understanding the world, how they're seeing the world. There's a game of um, there's a game of um, mirrors going on, not only in yeah. terms of the of the of the media, but in terms of how we're seeing the world. I think both those who support the current administration and those that don't. We have blinders on. We're seeing what we want to see, either from a negative perspective, you know, we're seeing Trump and what they're doing, and, you know, just being scared to death, as we should be. And then, but whether we see only the negative or only the positive, our perceptions are skewed in one way or another. We're looking at what we want to see whether we want to just see the horrible, evil things going on or whether we want to see um, you know, where there might be positive, you know, where there could be hope. And I would never discourage anyone from looking for hope, but it's how we look at it. It's like how are we looking at it? How are we facing it? How do we see ourselves yes. in relation to that? And to unveil you – know, Please. No, Please. You know, we're, your points are very well made, and I feel that they are uh, kind of opposing this kind of uh, – we have a couple of assumptions, many, in our society, one of which is there's always a silver lining, you know, sort of always see the good in everything, and it's just kind of hard to see the good in the random death, which is actually murder of an Iraqi or Syrian or Afghani child. And I don't know where you see the silver lining, where one sees the silver lining there. And then there's another big wave that we are actually, you and I, engaged in through our work on the Board of Fiance, which has an underlying assumption of the evolution of man and woman and of consciousness and of the species. So I just puzzle over this, Robert, and I'd love to hear what you have to say. Here you have this uh, this wonderful poem, and I so appreciate it, um, and its contours and suggestions. And we have the assumptions we like to make of seeing the good everywhere. Yet what we see is an amazing undertow of death called collateral damage and we see murder and we see a face off with with North Korea right now and we see the complete rollback of the 
diplomatic core in the United States to the point that it's been so shrunk the the State Department just can't do its job, and that just breeds more war. We see uh, a nation that is essentially its economy rests on war and violence. So, uh, just speak to that those assumptions, if you could. I'd be happy to. Okay, so just go back to the poem as a starting point. Of course, when we look in the mirror, we see our reflection and want to use that as a way to as a way to reflect in how we see the world. We we see a reflection often when we look at the world of our beliefs, of our prejudices, of our understanding of our place in the world. So in a sense when we look at the world, it's somewhat a reflection of what we are that goes into how we view it. Um Mm-hmm. The point of the poem, or my goal of the poem, was to encourage people to start looking at themselves in a different light. So as you look at yourselves in a different light, in other places, the reflections you get back are more contoured, are more nuanced. And that's how, and that's how I envision we need to start looking at the world in a contoured, nuanced way. So mm, to, nice. to, right, so to not sort of you know, say there's, you know, there's either the world is, is hopeful, there's promise, and there are horrible things going on, because both of those things are true as well as so many other. I mean, there are, there's war in Syria, in Afghanistan, there's violence and poverty in the United States. We see an upsurge in neo-Nazism, in fascism in this country, and it's easy to feel despair. But simultaneous with that, there are hopeful signs. There's been a great growth in activism. Uh, there are people I know that have, you know, I've known for years who've never talked about politics that are talking about politics. There are, mm-hmm. you know, we see the recent voter turnout in Alabama, in Virginia, people becoming more engaged. Now, granted, that's, their activities won't solve the world's problems, but all of these things, they occur simultaneously. I mean, it's not either all positive or all negative. There's, there, right. there is despair and hope. It, it's important right. to understand, or at least begin to explore, how all of these aspects of the world, you know, are at play, and how does that, and then start to, start to, start to imagine, start to envision how we can play a role. In making, in being part of the world, in making a difference in the world, understanding full well, we can't. There are so many things we can change, but there are things we can to, to make a positive difference. But it's always important to understand that it's very complex, and all the complexity is there, and we have to face up to it. Not that we're going to be thinking about this every day. It would be too much for anyone to take on. But to start looking at world in a more creative, more imaginative way which is why mm-hmm. I wrote this, this book of poems, because I had been writing poetry for years, various poems published in small journals. But I finally wanted to engage in a book because I wanted to draw the connection between our creativity, um, you know, a, quote, a work of art, and our day-to-day life. So for yes. these poems, I wanted to capture specific moments in a person's life, in this case mine, to understand the deep interconnection between our lives, between the world, and our creativity. In mm-hmm. a sense, to make poetry out like of life, to make art out of life. 
Yes, 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 exactly. And it helps to melt the boundaries. We, Our minds and uh, therefore reflected in society, we've got everything in little boxes, as the song of Pete Seeger was back in the 60s that my mother used to sing to me all the time, uh, little boxes on the hillside, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like this uh, ticky-tocky kind of thing. Remember that? And uh, our minds actually do work in a binary system, and we have to kind of step out of that in order to allow the two uh, hemispheres of the brain to converge and cohere and uh, establish another level of awareness and creativity. So obviously you know this process very well through writing poetry for so many years. Uh, so your words are helping to melt those boundaries between this idea of an art department over here and a poetry and literature department over there and life. Mm-hmm. And it seems so silly, but the fact is, it's all and should be a blend of, uh, as you say, life as art, you know, and uh, or life as a game right. slash life as art, right? Right, and part of my intention in these poems was to let go of intention, to write the poems truly in the moment, without, uh-huh. you know, without my prejudices, without my thoughts coming into it. I wanted to yes. truly let these poems become thoughtless, truly Merge. in the moment, and to uh-huh. react in the moment and to merge. And as I've been, you know, I've been a political activist for, you know, I'm, fifth, I'm 59. I've been a political activist since I've been a kid. I've been drawn to politics very deeply. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I've explored my own prejudices and I've explored my own, my, my own doubts and my own preconceptions. And so as I approach the political world, especially at a time like this where we are so challenged, it's to can I view the world? Can I react to the world, or can I act, even better act in the world in the in, in the uh, moment without those mm-hmm. preconceptions, without those um, prejudices? You know, of course they're going to be there; they're part of who we are. But if I could take that moment and just be in the moment and see things clearly, sometimes what you'll see is incredibly beautiful. Sometimes you'll see is incredibly scary. But when you start to approach it in the um, excuse me, in the in um in the moment, the action becomes clearer and there becomes a sense of there becomes a sense of a sense of sorry, a sense of a sense of looking for the word. I guess epiphany would be the word. You mm-hmm. you basically understand it. You understand the world and your role in it at a deeper level. And my poetry, as well as how I try to engage in the world, is from that point of epiphany, Um, something we've both spoken about often. Mm -hmm. For sure, for sure. No, I I appreciate that. I mean, you're actually reminding me of this idea that we come into the world, we do what we can to learn about its ways – we then seek to make our mark to help to shape it, influence it for the good, and then we have our day. The, the flower has bloomed, and we move toward another cycle in our lives, which is as we sort of ebb out. And now, that can be a long period of time, by the way. I'm not citing a mm-hmm. particular duration, but I am saying that 
uh, there's a certain shape to the whole. And then if we have children, that gets passed on to the next generations to do the same thing. And it's almost, I feel like in some ways I'm listening to the words of a wise man here who has gone through certain cycles and then sits back at life's end, not to say that, I don't mean that, but from a more wizened place and say, you know, I do what I do. I love life. I live life. I participate in life. I see things I'm horrified by and I see things that I adore and I embrace both. Mm-hmm. And it's in the sharing as well, and that's what makes that it wonderful. Is that a fair summation of some of what you're I, saying? You know, uh, no, I would say it's, um, it is a fair summation. And what I enjoy particularly about, um, about creative work is that I write to share with others. I also yes. sing and share with others because it's in that sharing that we – that we that we spur ourselves to basically create even more, and we inspire others to then create. Creativity right. and sharing is is so vital, both to the process and to encouraging others in their own process. I also so, I mean, my think favorite thing that is, it's. Go ahead, please. Yeah. No. So that's why I think. The experience I enjoy the most is when I get to share my poetry with others, and I can then have others share 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 um, their work with um, me. Because we do inspire each other, both in terms of art and in terms of our politics as well. It sounds like conspiracy or conspiracy. Mm-hmm the true meaning of the word of breathing together and it's also it becomes a love fest you know where you sharing opens up the heart of others and before you know it everybody's either laughing together or sobbing together or feeling at least some deep vibration together it's like everybody's on the same wavelength you know on that note since you love sharing so much would you select another (laughs) poem please for us Oh, I'd be very, I'd be very happy to. Good. Share with our audience. And our audience is from everywhere. So local politics, while, you know, it's sort of like the United States president, maybe this might be the last one, president of the world in some way, um, not necessarily a good way. But uh, I think that that role may be uh, kind of fading, talking about the uh, – Rose falling off its bloom, you know. America first in the world, right? Yes, and you do see it worldwide. And we can no longer understand our lives in terms of our locality, our nation, our city, our state. We are truly living yeah. in a global as well as a universal culture, as we're now coming to learn as NASA is starting to reveal all that it's known and all that we've known about life on other planets. We live in a very, um, in a very living um, universe. That's right. So pulsating. Exactly. And on that note, you have found another poem. I have found another poem in the corner behind stop signs and traffic lights a linden tree in front of a red, bl- in front of a red brick um, medical um, building 
vibrations of doubt linger, shades of memories, and long, never-forgotten fears waiting to be released. Mm. Wow. wow. So it's again bringing the day-to-day, the poetry, the day-to-day and um, poetry are, you know, I mean, they're really bound together. We see yeah. the poetry in our lives, and the poetry helps us to understand the deep spiritual element of our lives. That's right. And that's what that's right. I'm looking to convey. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine mm-hmm. said it's the first time he's ever seen the words uh, medical uh, building in a poem. So. Yeah, it's so funny. I was thinking that. And yet what that connotes is actually – rich and deep and uh, in some way really very disturbing, you know. (laughs) Who wants to see a medical building in a poem? Yet it's actually talk about the wedding of of life and poetry. It's very much a part of our life. And so why wouldn't it then be in uh, some poem that is reflecting some of our feelings and attitudes toward toward the medical establishment, toward our own health, therefore to also toward our own death, right, our own demise. Mm-hmm. I feel like you touch upon all of that with that phrase. Exactly. You know, which you know, I think you, well, you didn't intend it, but it emerged. <laughs> so, because right. we don't talk about it. Let it just all flow out. Exactly. Let exactly. me all flow well, out. It's just so interesting, and I, I so appreciate the work that you're doing, Robert, uh, because it really does help to bring poetry into daily living. Um, just tell us quickly about how you came about the uh, formation of the book and the what you set yourself. I made reference to it at the beginning of the uh, of the program. Right. Well, it started as a challenge to me, and in support of an organization. That I that is very that is very that is very important to me. Um, Integral Yoga um, Princeton. Um, yes. Instead of since I could not do 108 sun salutations, um, mm-hmm. I decided to write 108 um, poems with the idea that I would write a poem every day. Didn't quite work that way. Um, I did write a a poem a day, but those 108 days spread out over two and a half years. Because I wanted the poems to just come into um, being. And when the poems showed up, I wrote them down. Sometimes the poems didn't show up. So I just had to learn how to be very patient with myself mm-hmm. and with my process and with the universe. Mm, beautiful. So there was a whole growth spurt for you in being the author and oh, yeah, know, this was, paying attention this was very to creative critical, process. Not only yeah, and it wasn't only critical to my creative own process, but to my personal journey as well. Exactly, exactly. So you've become a better person. You have evolved personally <laughs> as a result of the process that you had to go through in the making of this book. So I so yes, appreciate you, Robert Levine. I think your work is Thank wonderful. You. And uh, is there a website? Is there a place where people could purchase the book if they would be interested? Yes, it's available on Amazon.com. Okay. It's, um, I am developing a website for my work, 
but it's unfortunately it is not live at this time, but it will be shortly. Okay. But it is okay. available in in a paperback format. Okay, fantastic. And uh, what we'll do is we'll get the um, the link to it on Amazon on our site as well, so people could go there to a better world TV and order it as well. So great, thank that you. Way, more people, sure, can become familiar with your good work. Your just a final comment, if you would, to our audience, Robert. It is a critical, and I have to remind myself of this every day, to be engaged without prejudice, without doubt, without intention, just to be in the uh, moment, to let thought not guide us, but our being in the world to guide us. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful. Wow. Well, I really appreciate that and your work, as I said, and just keep writing, man. Keep writing, you know, and I will, sharing I it. Okay? I certainly will. Thank God you, Rachel. You. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks for being on today and sharing, and uh, happy, happy holidays to you. Okay. You too. Bye. Great. Bye-bye now. Robert Levine, the author of Without Knowing Where We Are Going. Wow. And that's what a bold title that is because so many of us seek to uh, think that we know where we're going. We want to be sure. We want to be certain. We want to be bold at that. But in fact, you know, the great phrase that I intone frequently is, Man plans and God laughs. So that's not to be discouraging. It just means to be open to the reality of the way cycles work and life works and it manifests on levels we just have no idea. There are synchronicities everywhere all the time, and that's just a beautiful thing. So I want to just uh, thank Robert Levine again for joining us today and uh, remind all of you that you are listening to A Better World Radio with Mitchell J. Rabin. We are on every week, and while we're usually on Wednesdays at 6 p.m., it varies because of lots of reasons, not to mention most of you listen in archives. So what the heck? The timing of things these days has all changed. I don't know if this is a function of the millennials or a, a matter of TiVo coming into our lives on the television, uh, in the television world or what, but <clears throat> it's okay. It's fine. You know, the world is changing constantly, and this is another expression of it. However, that notwithstanding, every Monday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time is a Better World TV aired in Manhattan. So if you are in Manhattan, you can tune in to uh, Channel 35 on Verizon and just consult your manual or what have you, our website actually, and our newsletter for the other stations with the other uh, service providers. But do tune in because we have wonderful interviews taking place on television. And if you do not live in Manhattan, you can tune into it from anywhere anyway because it's also webcast. Just go to www.abetterworld.tv 
and you'll be able to watch it from any corner of the world if your internet is working well, that is. And we just are also uh, so pleased with the people that are signing up for our newsletter, which is free and comes out once a week, announcing our shows and uh, a blog here and there. So uh, just again, go to A Better World TV, and there you can sign up for the free newsletter in the right-hand column. So, with that said, we're going to be moving on to our next uh, guest, which happens to be kind of keeping it all in the family. Um, we have we have Karen Bromberg, who is Robert's wife, who is doing a lot of great work in her own right, and uh, for which we're very, very grateful. And... That is in the space of caregiving, and gosh, 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 we have much to learn about how to be a good caregiver. It's so fraught with so much, uh, how do I say, confusion and so many feelings because on one hand, I know what's going on with me and actually also my sister who we are both caring in different ways for our 90-year-old father. And this might be an interesting way to kind of start the conversation. Uh, on one hand, we are so eager to be engaged in uh, the development of our own lives, our professional lives, et cetera, et cetera, and our own sustenance, which is a big thing these days, as the dollar loses value and the taxes go up, et cetera, et cetera. And the caring for our dear, precious, beautiful father, who uh, we both so enjoy and love and honor and respect. And there is some divide there in our attention and our time and our energy. So Karen, who is a licensed audiologist by profession and has a doctor in audiology, is also a yoga instructor, but in dealing with these issues herself with her own family, uh, sought to gain some support and information from the world at large and didn't find much at all in the space of caregiving and therefore developed her own website. And she'll be speaking with us now about her experience in dealing with caregiving and what we all need to know. So, Karen Bromberg, welcome to A Better World. I hope you're there. There you are. I Hi. heard a squeak. Can you there hear me? You are. Okay. Oh, now I can. Yeah. Okay. Yes, wonderful. Yeah. Well, I just introduced you, and uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year. Merry Christmas to you. Yeah. Sure, and Merry Christmas you. to everybody that's listening. Happy Holidays, Absolutely. Happy Kwanzaa. And all happy Hanukkah as well, all of the happy above. Happy Hanukkah. So happy solstice. Tell us, tell us a little bit about what you first encountered and how you feel you can. What messages you have for caregivers around the world? Well, I'll start at the very beginning. So, for anybody that was affected by Hurricane Sandy five years ago. I'm sure you'll never forget what you were That's doing and York how you were folks. doing it. Yeah. yeah, New York, I'm sorry, New York metropolitan area up the eastern seaboard. 
It was a major, major, major storm. And my parents, who were at the time 89 and 90 years old, were severely affected. The house was flooded. Where did they live? And we, the Brighton Beach area, which is right near Coney Mm -hmm. Island. Mm-hmm. And anybody that knows that area knows that Coney Island, Sheepshead Bay area, was just flooded, flooded out. The Brighton Beach area didn't get that much press coverage, but it's sandwiched right in between. So you can imagine their neighbor yes. told me that there was anywhere between, I forget exact the exact amount, but someplace between 12 and 14 feet of water rushed down their block. So it was quite an impressive sight, needless to say. Yes. And we were told by a contractor that we had hired that to make the house safe for their return, that it would cost us upwards of $100,000, and nobody had it. So plan B, so we're now looking at either some kind of... Oh, please, please. There was no flood insurance on the house because up until that moment, thank you, global warming, there was, the house is not considered to be in a flood zone. Now it is. Mm-hmm. But so that they never carried flood insurance because they never needed to carry flood insurance. So now they have to carry flood insurance, which is at least at that time, I don't know what it is now, but at least at that time was terrible insurance for a lot of money. So again, we're looking at $100,000 to get them back into the house. Now they have to carry flood insurance as well. My husband and I, I'm an only child, I don't have siblings, so we could help them out financially, but there's just so much one person can do without Mm -hmm. bankrupting ourselves. Sure. So now we're looking at alternate housing. So we were thinking of apartments or what, and then finally we just decided on assisted living. So what does that mean? So I had to see about getting my parents onto Medicaid. Now, this is all surrounding a natural disaster where your emotions are running high to begin with. And now I have my 89 and 90-year-old parents, and where are they going to live? And how are they going to survive? And what are and how am I can and how can I help them to do that in a very safe and healthful way? Because I was concerned also about their mental uh, cognitive abilities. Because you change a person's, I mean anybody, you change anybody's situation drastically, they're going to respond. Elderly people get, can get a little confused of where they are. My fear was that they were going to start to decline cognitively because of all sure. this hoo-ha going on, which was a very big concern for me at the time. Of course. I looked on the Internet trying to find answers to my questions, how you know, basic stuff, how to put elderly people onto Medicaid with a kind of a walkthrough and kind of a a way to do things, I couldn't find a thing. It was all out there. All I had to do was have the mental capacity to be able to sit and search. I mean, the Internet is like the world's biggest library. It has everything, but if you're um, emotionally distraught, if you're tired, if you're stressed, if you're overwhelmed, you're not going to see what's in front of your face. 
So, so you basically there, collated, you took from many different areas information and put them into a kind of a, a coherent, organized fashion in your website. Exactly. Is that correct? Exactly. Beautiful. I Beautiful. did... I created what I wanted. I wanted quick, easy information that I didn't have to search hours and hours for, and that's what I created. Sure. So what, what is your message, Karen, to people like yourself, a message to you, a message to people like my sister and myself, like so hundreds of thousands of people in our country and because we have a, an international audience, it happens everywhere. Yeah. It's got nothing to do with being American. And Absolutely. What, what messages do you want us or things do you want us to be kind of looking out for in this role of caregiver? Because let's just also frame it that traditionally we have lived in extended families, that we've lived, right. everything's been village life or in some cases shtetl life. And there was right. a family. There was a nexus. There was a, a, a nobody place thought about it for everyone. It was never even exactly. a thought. Everything has changed so radically. It's right. a different kind of conversation right now. So, how right. in Absolutely. adapting to the new situation would you? What would you say to caregivers today, and what they should be looking out for? Well, my big takeaway from the whole situation, and what I want people to know, is that. You're 100% right. We are in a paradigm shift now where in my parents' generation, we just took care of grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, whatever. Now, and I think it's partly because women are now full force in the workforce and make a very large part of the family income, that mm -hmm. mother can no longer stay at home um, and take care of grandma or auntie or whatever without really impacting the family income and her own financial future. So, I mean, there are several things, and I don't have, have ready-made answers. I truly don't. But what I want people to know is that you can't take care of your loved one without taking care of yourself. So in other words, if you are running yourself into the ground, if you are not eating properly, if you're not exercising properly, if you're not taking care of your emotional health, we live in such a fast-paced world and so much is expected of us that we have to make ourselves a priority. You know, on the list of to-dos, of which caregivers have a big, 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 big list, we have to place ourselves as caregivers towards the top, if not the very top. So in the morning, the first thing we do is we meditate. Does that mean we have to get up a little bit earlier? Maybe. But we have to take care of body, mind, and spirit because otherwise, mm -hmm. God forbid, something happens to us as caregivers, who's going to take care of our loved ones? To go down, it reminds me of, you know, I make reference to this fairly often because of the same fundamental principle that you're, you're referencing here of when you're on board an airplane, the stewardess says, exactly. you know, put the oxygen mask first on yourself and then on exactly. your child or whomever. And it just, it, it really does. That's one of the most intelligent things that has come out of commercial business world, <laughs> you know. Uh, for sure, that for sure. It's just the case, you know. 
So that, that's I mean, a very important piece of the whole picture. I agree with you completely. I I see it in myself. And there's also under just in, in Robert, I was in my discussion with Robert just now, talking about these underlying assumptions in our society. There's another one to, from my point of view, comes from the Judeo-Christian ethos, uh, morphogenetic field, if you will, in which we all live, despite any religious affiliation of any sort, it's got nothing to do with it, it's almost like this large hovering cloud over Western, at least Western society, which is this idea of the martyr, and you right. can't do enough for another, and that right. is actually highly held in our society, oh, yeah. that martyr oh, yeah. mythology and motif. So, archetype. So, can you guilt. talk to dealing with that? Because I think that's a lot of what underpins our unconscious drive and fear and guilt, if not shame. Absolutely, absolutely. This whole I mean, I fell into it. Uh, for sure I fell into it. I can remember moments where I was like, if I just would do this or if I just would do that, because we also think that if I just do, if I just make that one more trip to see mother or dad, I could forestall the inevitable happening. Somehow mm-hmm. I have power. To, I have the power of life and death, which is, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. a little egocentric, if I would only, say. If only if you only, visited your mother one I, more time. <laughs> if only I made that phone call, mother would still be here, but it's so not true. And when we exactly. step away from it and have enough space, we've even realized that it's just, there's even a little bit of funny, it's even a teeny tiny bit funny to think that we could do that and to think that we put ourselves, sure. I did it too, in that kind of a vice that we did that that i would have done that but it's really true there's this whole martyr thing and i saw it in myself and i see Mm -hmm. it in others they for some reason i've yet to quite figure out because i haven't quite figured it out myself we don't want to share with others and say help i'm drowning i need you know, somebody to walk this path with me, someone to brainstorm ideas with, someone to help take things off my plate because I just have too much on my plate. Help! We don't. That's right. We don't do that. I actually asked a friend of mine why he doesn't do it without making him feel bad or shame as to why he's not reaching out, but just why aren't you? I'm just curious. And he used the word privacy. This is a private matter. This is within Mm -hmm. the family. As if somehow mother not declining father and declining, you know, spouse, whatever, as if somehow that's a shameful thing. And I find that to be an inter- interesting mindset. And I, I often think, you know, did I have that mindset as well, that it was somehow, sh- there was some sort of shame attached that my parents well, were in there. I speak to that, actually. I'd like to bring two things up. First, going back to the martyr thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. And something you said, which was, if only I had shown up one more time, my mother would still be alive. You know, that idea, that that theme, uh, is actually the height of arrogance and ego. 
and I'm not just talking about you. I'm talking about that yeah, thought yeah. process because, as you put it very well, um, so when when did God die and we became boss, you know, that we had the exactly. power, as you said, of life and death? So that's one thing. The other thing I think that you're, you're underscoring here, and I just kind of want to articulate it this way, is that there's this idea that living is winning and dying is failing. And if we die, we've failed. And that sprays onto, splatters, if you will, onto the next of kin, the family right. at large. Right. And that's true. That is a complete serious misunderstanding of the magnificence of the ecosystem, if you will, of birth and death as being opposites distinct from life and death being right. opposites, as they say Eckhart Tolle has referred to, but as have many other people over time. Anyway, I just wanted to lay that out because I think these are right. underlying assumptions that seriously shape and affect our thinking and action. And it's 100% true. It's so true. I mean, nobody wants the person that they love to see them suffer, of course, and no one wants to see them die. I didn't. Correct. Uh, but, at some, but at some point, there's... We're going to see it. You're going to see it. I mean, and hopefully it's a gentle passing and a gentle transition. Sometimes it's not. But we all transition at some point. And, you know, and it's hard to say, you know, oh, you know, you should approach it this way or you should approach it that way because everybody has the right to approach any transition in any part of life however they want. But there's a way to approach it where suffering is increased and a way of approaching it where suffering is not so much. I'm, I'm trying Very to not true. say decrease, but, but not so much. Yeah. And my feeling yeah. is, is that if we could embrace each other and not make it a private matter, that we won't suffer quite so much in this process. Yeah. It's a hard process. It is. It's hard watching all the people that we love so dearly decline and knowing someplace in the back of our head, if not in the front, that this is not going to turn out the way we want it to. <laughs> it's hard. But, you it's know, hard I, of course it's not going to because we're children. And we don't want to believe that death is inevitable. We live in a fantasy. And we we don't want mommy and daddy to not be there. Uh No matter what our relationship might be, we may have a wonderful relationship with mommy and daddy, or we might have had a terrible relationship with mommy and daddy. They are still mommy and daddy. And we don't want mommy and daddy to go. That's right. And it's not just mommy and daddy. It's, it's, no, our no. spouse, our friends, right. our uncles and right. aunts. It's the entire human family, really, if you want to really extend exactly. it out. But staying a little Absolutely. bit more local, we just right. don't like death. And we don't have – I'm, I'm reminded, you know, in our closing moments, I want to just reference this incredible education that Tibetan Buddhist monks have as children when they are identified or become Uh, sort of monks in training. One of their duties is to be with those who are dying. And I'm talking about as children, 
four, five, six, seven years old, they must be at the bedsides of people who are in their later years who are passing. So they learn that characteristic of life. And they're not afraid of it. They embrace it. They understand that life is actually a preparation for what we call death, that death is there, nothing like we think about it here either. That's a whole other conversation. But that it's continuance, of course, right? And so it's a beautiful thing. It's not a deathly morbid thing that we have it associated with here. So I just wanted to bring that to bear uh, regarding our kind of very childish and really immature perspective on the the real living, dying process. If you would share our, your, your kind of final thoughts with us, not to, that's a bad pun, you could say, but you understand. <laughs> no, 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 I, I, I got the pun, yeah. No, that's actually quite cute. I, I, because we also have to, you know, it's not, I don't want to say this is a laughing matter. It's not. But if we can inject some humor into some of the aspects of family caregiving, that Absolutely. would also that would also Lighten make the up. whole situation. Right. Yeah, I mean, let's get a little bit of endorphins going. Not everything is this heavy, 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 heavy thing. Some of it is we if we look at it in a certain vein, kind of funny. Yes, exactly. There are very few, you know, a guy who was an athlete earlier in his life now can't even go up the steps by himself. You know, he's got to use a walker. I mean, there is, you know, it might take a Jackie Mason or Woody Allen to really highlight the humor, but maybe we can engage them, you know, as they grow older too, you know. But maybe not even that. Maybe it's just like certain situations where, oh, mother is saying the same old thing, something, no matter what it is, she said the same thing when I was a kid. She's now in her 90s. She had a stroke. She could barely talk. But that same phrase just exactly. you know, comes right out. That happened with my father when he had his stroke. He had aphasia, could barely talk. But one phrase kept coming through, and you're kind of like, okay, got it. Okay, some things just don't what, what, change. What was the phrase? There's something kind of nice about that. Um, He he started on a whole thing of, all right, okay, all right, okay. And throughout, (laughs) even his dying process, the people around him would say it back to him. There's something actually quite beautiful about that, that there was that much love in the room where when when he was dying that they would come up to him and go, all right. Okay. All right. Almost like a almost like a mantra. There's like something a chant, kind of beautiful about like it. Like a mantra. Yeah, there's that's something kind of funny. beautiful about it. Sure, sure, sure. Well, that's one of that's a beautiful note to end on. I very much appreciate that. <laughs> oh you know, my! You know, bit of humor sometimes. I my father. I just I guess maybe I'll I'll close with this. My father, Karen, um, a month before or so he became 90, very suddenly lost his eyesight. And actually, I believe, I don't know like for sure, but based on the research I've done, it looks like it's from having watched too much television because there's a blue light that actually gets emitted oh, from all screens, by the way, television screens, computer monitor screens, 
uh, cell phone screens, etc. And we need to really um, protect ourselves, and there are ways of doing that. Uh, and in his case, I didn't really know about that much when this all happened, and it happened over the stretch of years. But there it, he went from being sighted to unsighted, like virtually in a matter of days. And it was very alarming, needless to say. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I remember shortly thereafter, I was with him, and I was driving, and I said, Dad, you know, I just discovered one really good thing as we were driving down the highway about you're not being able to see. He said, what's that, son? I said, you can't criticize my driving. You can't see it. There you go. <laughs> and we both laughed and laughed. <laughs> Oh you can see the dark cloud or you can see the silver lining. I mean, I think there that's really go. a takeaway that's of right. caregiving. I mean, where, right. where do you want to put your energy, in the dark cloud or in the silver lining? That's right. Well, Karen Bromberg, thank you so much for the good work that you're doing. Give your website you. to our audience so anyone can tune in and get that. www.helpyouthrough.com. Dot com. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, thanks again for the and good gonna, work you're doing. I'm encouraged. Well, thank you. Well, good. Absolutely. I'm going to be doing, I'm, I'm starting a whole bunch of programs with the beginning of the year. So for anybody that wants to join my mailing list so they can find out about what's going to be coming up, I encourage you to do that or stop by on our Facebook page or join our group on Facebook. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you again, and have a happy new year. And, and uh, again, thank you, Mitchell. Thank work. you. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Bye now. Bye-bye. Wow. That was really something. Interesting, interesting how even poetry is caregiving, to just loop back to where we began with her husband, Robert, in today's show. Uh, it's it's all these expressions of love in different forms. And some of it is face-to-face. Some of it is by doing paperwork to help an elderly parent or whomever get through a rather complex Kafka-esque system, I can tell you, because I'm doing it. Uh, and it's madness, and that, that deserves its own show, for crying out loud. However, we see that there are these sort of archetypal themes that run through our lives, whether it's in America or whether it's in Australia or South America or Mexico, where we have listeners all over the UK. And it's just heartening to know that there are people like Robert and Karen who are doing this good work in different spaces that really create a confluence of ultimately of effect and love. And I think that's uh, the thing that's really going to bring us through these pretty dark times, I must say, with uh, the current president of the United States is causing untold damage on so many levels in our society and the society at large, the world society. And everybody is suffering as a result. Uh, very, very few people, I guess, the not even the 1% anymore, it's the half a percent that are just gleeful. I mean, what in the world can they do with so much money? I don't know. If they were going to be using it for the good, for the common good, 
that would be a whole other story. Doesn't look like it's really trickling down, does it, Donald? Anyway, enough of that. You understand. So caregiving and the language of poetry that both of our guests today brought forth is just uh, of even more importance now than perhaps in the past. So I want to just thank you all for listening. Remember, go to our website at www.abetterworld.tv and sign up for our newsletter. We also have uh, interviews online uh, in the form of DVD. We can also we also stream them. Uh, we have that Amazon store you can find on the same website. And if you need any of my counseling and coaching services or our energy balancing biofeedback services, go to triple dot MitchellRabin.com, that's M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L-R-A-B-I-N, as in Arabin.com, and uh, you can always contact me there or through MJR at abetterworld.net, MJR at abetterworld.net. Also remember that we are a 501c3. We so appreciate your contributions, your donations, which are an investment, if you will, in the future of our world, in creating a better world. We so appreciate it. And uh, so bear us in mind. You can use our PayPal account if you do friends and family on our website, or you can just contact me and uh, deal with it through direct contact with me. Thanks again. I so appreciate your being on and listening today and forward this to your friends and family as it is and may be very, very relevant. So I look forward to have a wonderful, happy new year, everyone, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.